There was no evidence that governor, that, that uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around other people's well, elections, yeah. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Rackets Podcast. This is Brian Sadie. On this podcast, we cover all the different types of rackets in the world, everything from organized crime and drug trafficking to crony capitalism. And this is really a subject today that will kind of touch upon many of those. And it's really sort of the state of perpetual war. And I have really a fantastic guest. His name's Nathan Smith. Uh, he's a former army captain and an intelligence officer at the command headquarters in Kuwait. Most notably, he filed a federal lawsuit back in 2016 against the president of the United States, challenging the legality of the wars in Syria and Iraq. So welcome to the show, Nathan. Thanks. It's great to be with you. I definitely want to talk about this lawsuit that you filed. But I think it would just kind of be interesting for the audience to kind of get basically like a little bit of, of a better understanding about you and your background. So I was kind of hoping maybe you could tell us why you joined the military, a little bit about that decision. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually um, from a family that's three generations of, of military officers. My grandfather, who's, who's still alive, 96, he's a World War II uh, veteran fighter pilot. Uh, Navy officer. My mother was a Navy officer. My father was a Navy officer. My uncle, my sister served briefly as a Navy as a naval officer. So military service runs pretty deep in my family. And uh, when I went to college, I decided I wanted to do Army ROTC. Um, I kind of broke the tradition of of not going Navy in my family. <laughs> um, for me, it was partially a, a thing. The, the aspect of, of us being a country at war um, at, at that time we were, you know, in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I really wanted to be in, uh, if I was going to contribute, I wanted to be on this, on the, in the service where you're really put most at the forefront of, of what's going on, because I felt like that was the best way for me to see and understand and really contribute, you know, as an individual. Obviously, that's not to detract from any of the other services, which obviously all play super key roles in, in supporting the mission. Um, so I joined ROTC. Um, I commissioned as a second lieutenant in 2010. Out of the, Well, it, the ROTC program was out of San Diego State. Um, I graduated from University of San Diego, so it was a cross-town program. Hmm. Um, and uh, I commissioned as an artillery officer. Um, and I did three and a half years uh, of artillery um, and then switched over to intelligence uh, when I basically when I made captain right around then they, they switched the branch for me there. And I was trained as an intel officer there in uh, Fort Huachuca, Arizona. So I did one deployment in 2012 uh, for eight months to Afghanistan, uh, to northern Kunar province on the Pakistan border. Uh, again, as an artillery officer, I was on a it's called an SFAT team, which is an advisory team. Uh, we advised the Afghan border police 
So that was an interesting experience. Um, and then I, in 2015, uh, I was assigned as an intelligence officer this time to uh, three core headquarters in Fort Hood, Texas, um, which is the headquarters for the three-star general and uh, there at Fort Hood, who's the ranking officer at Fort Hood and the core, the core commander. And we came down on deployment orders to go to Kuwait to set up, well, there was already a headquarters set up up there that was overseeing the fight at that time it was basically just in Iraq. <clears throat> the but they wanted a command headquarters to oversee and coordinate efforts there. And there was one that was already existing at that time, but it had been it was kind of ad hoc put together from a bunch of different elements. So they wanted to have a cohesive, already existent core headquarters take over that mission. Um, so uh, I deployed in. August of 2015 on a 12-month deployment to Kuwait, and uh, I worked on the operations floor as, as an intelligence uh, analyst um, and ops officer, so I managed a, a small team of, of about five, uh, five other soldiers uh, along with, with my NCO, my non-commissioned officer, a sergeant, and we provided you know, briefs and did all the, all the normal stuff that you would expect on an operations floor. So that's kind of kind of my background is in summary, I guess. Okay. So what you've done was really bold, basically, <laughs> as far as I can tell, unprecedented. If you don't mind, do you mind explaining basically really the sort of the nuts and bolts of, of your lawsuit that you filed against? <clears throat> yeah. So basically, you know, on a personal level, how I kind of came to this, this juncture with this lawsuit was, when I deployed in, in, again, in August of 2015, um, at that time, the, it was obviously President Obama was in office and the Congress was controlled by the Republican Party. Um, and so it was basically, you know, widely accepted that the mission that was going on to counter ISIS there in the Middle East and in Iraq and Syria was a necessary mission. I mean, that was basically common... The, the sort of the common thought process in Washington, D.C. Now, I'm not saying I agree with that or not. I'm just saying right. that that was sort of what what the uh, political class was was thinking at the time. So there was a lot of discussion with, is Congress going to officially authorize uh, American troops to go into, into well, both Iraq and then, of course, like Kuwait, where I was, like, because you know, to oversee the mission. And at that time, the Republican Party was saying that they were essentially in favor of this, but they were, they didn't want to vote for a bunch of political reasons, basically, you know, sparring between President Obama and them. Uh, they didn't want to provide him that authority until they got some assurances as to what the mission was going to be, et cetera, et cetera. So <clears throat> the situation that we ended up having was that uh, in 2015, when I deployed, the conflict had already been going on with U.S. troops involved for about a year at that point. And yet in that year time frame, Congress had not voted to authorize the mission. So per the, the, the War Powers Act of, of uh, you know, the post-Vietnam War Powers Resolution that was passed, there, there's very strict stipulations on timeline for when, if a president is going to send troops into American troops into combat or to support combat operations, even of, a, of another country, like he needs to get a 
congressional approval for that. And I won't go into the specifics too much of that law because, you know, my whole, my legal team did that obviously <laughs> ad nauseum in our, in our lawsuit. But it, bottom line is it was our, it was, it was the interpretation of a lot of legal scholars at the time and kind of intellectuals that, that President Obama was in violation of the law of, of the War Powers Resolution in the way that he had sent troops in without congressional authorization. And, you know, it's important to point out, usually in the modern era, that authorization comes in the form of an, what, what they call an AUMF, an author, authorization for the use of military force. Um, so, for instance, President Bush, when he invaded, when we invaded Iraq in 2003, he got a congressional authorization from Congress and an AUMF allowing him to do that. And after 9-11, there was an AUMF passed, which famously only one member of Congress in both the House and the Senate voted against, and that was Representative Barbara Lee from California, which was extremely brave political move at the time. But that, that post 9-11 AUMF, I think it's like 40 words long, and it, and it authorizes the president to go after essentially uh, the perpetrators of 9-11. And it's very, it's, it's pretty broad language, but it's not all encompassing language. It, it really isn't a blank check. It wasn't, even the way it was written, which was, I think, deeply flawed, uh, it, it doesn't, no one at the time, I don't think, thought it constituted a, a blank check for a president. Right. So basically, when at the time I deployed, there, there was no AUMF that had been passed specific to this conflict uh, because we had pulled troops out of Iraq in 2011. Uh, it's important to note the Obama administration had and his Susan Rice had written a letter to Congress stating that it was the view of the administration that the conflict that had been authorized by the 2003 AUMF was now over and the administration was now not going to use that AUMF for legal justification going forward. So essentially the Obama administration a few years earlier had already said we're done with that AUMF. So again, that was it's important to note there's two AUMFs. There's the 2001 post 9/11 one, and then there's the 2003 Iraq War AUMF. So they're saying the Iraq War AUMF is is you know finitum. It's done, which is interesting because in our lawsuit, as the Department of Justice was contesting our lawsuit later down the road, they actually made the completely nonsensical argument that the 2001 AUMF covered this conflict, so the president didn't need a separate vote from Congress with a new AUMF, but anything that wasn't covered by that post 9-11 AUMF was covered by the 2003 AUMF. Well, that makes absolutely no sense when you are, this is from an administration that's arguing that they've already rescinded that. So this is the kind of nonsense that we're getting from the Department of Justice uh, throughout our court case throughout this multi-year process that the, that the court case uh, went. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just indicative of how the deck is stacked uh, against any plaintiff on any kind of national security type lawsuit over the last, you know, basically 20 years and just how deferential to the executive uh, the judiciary has become because they can just throw out this utter garbage of, of legal arguments and somehow it's sufficient. Yeah, it really is amazing how on such an important matter, it's it's just, um, I don't even know how to say it. I'm kind of like at a loss for words. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, it just kind of blows my mind. Again, matters of war, it, it's just sort of this basic like trivial response by the DOJ. 
again, you're not you're not questioning whether or whether even these are a good idea to do it. You're just saying the legality of the issue, right? So, stance there. So the reason that I personally felt the need to be the plaintiff in this case was well. Well, first let me let me I guess explain how I kind of came to that point. Um, so I, I deployed in 2015. And at the time I deployed there, again, Congress was going back and forth and they were saying, okay, there's, we're going to pass an AMF, essentially. There's going to be one in the next several months. There's going to be one in the next several months. And you just, it, the goalpost just keeps shifting. Right. First it was, oh, well, we, we're about to have Paul Ryan take over as speaker. He's really going to settle down the house and like, we're going to get this business done. Everything's going to settle down. We'll get the AMF passed then. So he takes over, nothing happens. Then there's... There was always something cooking, but nothing ever getting cooked. I was watching this and I was deeply troubled because in my view, you know, when you commission as an officer in in the military, you take an oath to support and defend the constitution Uh, above all else. That's, that's what you're swearing to do. Now you, you agree to obey the orders of the officers appointed over you. And, you know, obviously the president being first among them. But really, in, in my view, when I was taking that oath and what I grew up hearing from my parents and inside my own family, which, again, is three generations of military service, is you are, you are supporting a system of government and you need to believe in that system of government and really think that that's what you want to do when you take that oath. And that's, that's what I did when I stood in 2010 and um, in San Diego and raised my right hand and, and, you know, with 20 other people, you know, we were commissioned as second lieutenants in in the army. I took that very seriously. But so to me, when I'm seeing something happening and it's a complete breakdown of the system and the constitutional system, obviously Congress is the branch that declares war in our constitution. So there's been no declaration of war. There's been no AUMF. And yet, I'm receiving a deployment order from the Obama administration to go into this conflict. That that's, that's an anathema to, to my, to my oath that I took. Right. So, um, so anyway, like, again, there's a lot of legal scholars that were concerned about this and one in particular. So I was reading a lot of stuff while I was downrange and kind of just before I left. And uh, one, one in particular kind of, stood out and that was uh, professor bruce ackerman from from yale law school um, who's been a longtime critic of sort of encroaching executive power especially with regard to to war power and he wrote a piece in the atlantic in which he essentially outlined and templated a lawsuit where a person serving in the military that was engaged actively in the conflict in in iraq or syria would sue in federal court because he said such a person would have legal standing uh, to bring that case. Whereas like a member of Congress would not because they don't, there's some case law stating essentially that they don't, they don't have legal standing in that, but there was case law from the Vietnam war that professor Ackerman thought. um, And I, I won't go down into all that stuff, but basically there was some, there was some legal precedent um, from some draftees in the Vietnam era who had received deployment or orders and then sued basically saying the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was, was illegal or, or whatever. So oh, we were, yeah, so we were basically using some of that existing case law along with the very clear language of the, of the war powers resolution 
um, to say, hey, um, this is not legal. This this is not a legal deployment order. Um, and since it, you know, every deployment order ultimately originates with the president, obviously it's communicated through the Secretary of Defense, but it, it originates with the president's authority through the executive branch. The the you know, plaintiff or on the other side would, had to be President Obama and then subsequently President Trump. Um, so that's kind of the gist of kind of what got me there and the concerns that I had and and everything that, that you know, I, I basically reached out to Ackerman and said, I will be the plaintiff in this lawsuit. Um, and uh, I had to wait a while because I was going through some family, some family stuff. My, my mother was... Uh, was terminally ill. So I was not going to do it until she passed away. Um, so, you know, which really bothered me, but I ultimately, when she passed away, I called him and said, okay, I'm ready to, to do this. And, and so it went from there. Yeah. I mean, I think that probably was the right decision. I imagine even though, again, this was a principled stance, you, you had to face some backlash when you made this decision. Yeah, it was <laughs> the whole story of kind of like the everything that happened inside that headquarters after all this went down was pretty <laughs> kind of epic, at least for me as the person that it's happening to. <laughs> um, but, you know, the military is obviously a very conservative organization, not conservative. I don't mean in the sense politically, but in in action, you know, it, it there's not generally like radical actions taken inside the military um, on on policy stuff like this. And at first glance, I think a lot of people have a hard time reconciling with somebody suing their commander in chief. And I I understand that. Again, I, I grew up in a a family where I never thought when I was, (laughs) you know, swearing my oath in 2010 or when I was 15 or whatever, that I would ultimately end up being a plaintiff in the case against (laughs) the president. But I also didn't think we would have such absurd breakdown, frankly, in the rule of law in this country that allowed a completely illegal deployment of troops in circumstances like this and a a total breakdown in our constitutional system and our separation of powers. Um, Again, in a system that I am sworn to defend per, per my commissioning oath. So I, I, I viewed it as this isn't a radical action. This is the only action that's appropriate uh, to take because I, I don't have any other choice. You're taught in the military that you are obligated to disobey illegal orders. And that was the, the avenue that we went down with this lawsuit um, was in a way, I guess, sort of self-preservation because I thought that this was an illegal order. So if I actually thought that this was an illegal order, I should have stopped obeying any order orders related to this conflict at that point. And I wasn't ready to do that. And, and you know, because that's going straight to court martial and, you know, and that would have been an interesting thing to see how that would have played out. But what Ackerman was presenting to me was, the ability to ask a valid constitutional question whilst continuing my mission and continuing to be a leader to my soldiers. And so when the lawsuit dropped, I had four months left in my deployment. And they asked me if I wanted to go home and I said, no, I 
I want to stay here with my soldiers. Like, and they're like, well, I don't understand because you obviously don't want to be here or whatever. And I was like, well, I don't want to, it's not that I don't want to be here. I mean, frankly, no one really wants to be in Kuwait for a year that I'm aware of. Like, <laughs> uh, but it's that, and no offense to Kuwait, obviously, but I got what you meant. Right. Yeah. Understood. So, um, it's not that I don't want to be here. It's that I want to be here under the right circumstances that are done the correct way. And at any point in any of this process, me being there under legal circumstances was as simple as Congress getting up and voting to authorize the conflict. It, they could have done that at any time. So they chose not to, and they chose not to because they're frankly political cowards and they don't want to be on record for a tough war vote. And I find that just utterly disgusting um, morally when you're going to send troops or you're in action essentially is going to send troops into harm's way and yet you cannot be bothered to go on record to vote either for or against the war. I don't even care. I'm not telling you how you should vote. There's, there's arguments on both sides, um, but you are refusing to take that vote. And we lost guys while I was there. There was a number of, K, of KIA, um, and we had moments of silence on the ops floor, you know, where they flashed the picture of, of these guys that were killed in raids and, and stuff like that. And, you know, obviously it's, it wasn't Iraq in 2006 or seven where you're having body bags just flow back to the U S but there are casualties and it's just, I, I just couldn't comprehend the political cowardice um, involved there. Yeah. It's really kind of amazing. These people, you know, they're unwilling to, to risk their political career. So they're going to put other people's lives at risk. You know Exactly. Yeah. And, and that's how I felt about it. That's the thing. I mean, in the worst case scenario for a lot of these politicians, just to be totally cynical, but it really is the truth, is the majority of them often end up going and working on K Street as a lobbyist and making even more money um, in the private sector. But again, you know, they're just unwilling to just make a, a political stand on basically the most important issue that, that you can decide upon. So, yeah, that, that really is stunning. Um, so let me ask you, so what... Uh, what, what is basically the status of the lawsuit? So um, basically now it's, it's, it's done. It was, it was thrown out um, by the courts. So the, the progress that um, happened, the steps was we sued originally in the uh, DC district court. Um, and it was heard by a one, a single judge there. So at that time, you know, we submit our, our briefs and then the Department of Justice at that time it was the Obama administration, DOJ, submits their counter arguments and you duel back and forth with these legal briefs for a while. And then the judge rules. Well, <clears throat> she it was, a uh, again, a single judge. And she ruled basically that she was not going to rule on the merits of the case. So she wasn't going to say if you know, I was right or wrong, or, or there was a violation of the war powers resolution occurring. She was saying, she said that she was dismissing it on grounds of standing uh, because there, it represented a political question doctrine situation, which is there's precedent for, I think, terrible precedent and some of it. But basically, it's it's saying that the court cannot resolve this because it's a conflict between two branches of government. So if Congress and the executive are 
it, it's a matter that needs to be resolved between the two of them. Well, our legal team made, you know, in our arguments, and I, I think obviously I'm biased, but I think that there's a lot of validity to it. it you know, Ackerman and, and David Reams, who was my litigator, who did a fantastic job, both of them, in crafting these, these legal arguments, they said one of the points that they made was, no, this is a question of statutory interpretation. So the court's job is to interpret laws as written. So the War Powers Resolution is the law of the land. That, that was, that's a statute that was passed in the 70s. So what we're asking you to do is a very simple thing that's clearly within the mandate of the judiciary, which is you have this plaintiff. He's saying that he's been issued an illegal order and it's based on this law, the War Powers Resolution, and obviously you know, the Constitution itself, which reserves for Congress the, the right to declare war. And we want you to interpret that. So basically what she was saying was, well, I'm not going to interpret that. Like, that's not my job. Huh. So she dismissed it on those grounds. And they also dismissed it. So she also threw in there basically, he's not actively engaged in combat in Iraq. So he's, he doesn't have standing. So that might be a, a, a thing too. It was very weak language. So from there, it went up to the next level, which is the D.C. Court of Appeals, and it goes to a three-judge panel there. Um, and, you know, the same thing, you have dueling briefs go back and forth. And uh, in September of 2017, we, ha we had the opportunity to do oral arguments. So my two, my legal team represented by, again, David Reams and Bruce Ackerman, uh, went in front of the D.C. Uh, Court of Appeals, a three-judge panel, and made the arguments with the Department of Justice. Now, one thing that came out of those oral arguments that should just terrify any American, and at this, at this point, the Trump administration was in, was in power, so the DOJ is now the Trump DOJ, right? Mm -hmm. Which, it doesn't change the case because we were still, you know, the, the mission is the same. Now, I've obviously long since deployed back from uh, Kuwait at this point, but this is like two years, you know, it, it had taken two years to, to work its way through the courts. And I'm now at this point out of the army, um, but I'm, I'm still on what's called the ready reserve, which is basically they have you on a list and they can recall you. So we were using that as saying, well, he could still be sent back technically. Right. Uh, so one thing that was just a shocking moment in that courtroom um, that I think everybody sort of held their breath because there's, you know, some people in there and stuff and, so one of the one of the judges who I thought was the most open-minded justice it was his a justice by the name of uh, Griffith. He asked the question of the to the Department of Justice uh, attorney. Basically, they were making the argument that that an AUMF is not meant to be law. Essentially, like it's not it's not open to interpretation. That's just handed off from Congress, and there's no. It's not the it's not the uh, court's job to interpret any kind of limits on an AUMF. <laughs> so that's absurd. And so Justice Griffiths, Judge Griffith, asked, "Well, I'm having a hard time understanding what you're saying. So are you saying that you cannot envision any scenario in which any the post 9/11 AUMF, which is being cited as the legal authority for this mission?" Anywhere in the world, so say we're attacking India, I mean, I'm, he didn't say this, but this is basically what he was getting at. Uh, 
just a, something that's obviously not related to Al-Qaeda in any way. I mean, ISIS is not related to Al-Qaeda, and that was absurd that they were using that in the first place. But do you see any way that it's appropriate that anyone could bring this case and say this is obviously not inside the legal authority of that AMF has passed? And the DOJ lawyer had the audacity, and this is, I mean, this is terrifying. He said, no, I don't, no, no, judge, I don't see any, I don't see any limitation that the that would be appropriate for the judiciary to impose on an AUMF that's been passed by Congress. So he, he's basically saying there that if Congress passes an AUMF, every AUMF is by definition a blank check to go to war whenever the whenever the executive branch chooses. And that's terrifying. Right. Oof, that's a lot there. Um so let me answer this. I mean Obviously, you know, the powers that be, I guess, have, 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 you know, pushed that that development down. Have you really taken maybe any other action that's, you know, maybe not quite so official, but <clears throat> I guess sort of like, like an activism role or something like that? Yeah, I've, I've tried to stay engaged on the issue. I've written, I think at this point, five or six op-eds uh, for different different publications. I've gone to, I was invited to speak at a conference um, at Notre Dame actually last year, which was, I really enjoyed. Um, hmm. and, um, I've, uh, I've actually was able to meet with somebody, um, representative Walter Jones, who just passed away, by the way, oh, yeah. uh, who has yep. been a champion on this issue, super principled, whether you agree with his politics or not, he's been extremely principled on this issue and has been long saying that Congress has abdicated its responsibility in a really disgusting way on, on the war powers issue in general. And, you know, I was able to meet with him in his office um, and speak to him. And so I, I tried to kind of engage a little bit politically with both parties because this is a bipartisan issue. It's not, it's not a party thing. Uh, Representative Jones is a Republican, uh, but um, you know, and Rand Paul is, is famous in the Senate for, for voicing some of these, these arguments. But then on the left, you also have, you know, people like uh, Barbara Lee, who was the sole person who voted against the 9-11 AUMF because she foresaw a lot of this and how it's going to be used as a blank check. So I really respect that. And like I'll wrote Kana, some, some of those guys on the left. Um, so I've tried to kind of engage on that and you know, with mixed success. So we'll, we'll see what happens, but I, I definitely want to keep pushing forward on it because I think this is, you know, I think it's something that's not in enough Americans consciousness of how dangerous this path is that we're going down, which is essentially just that we now have decided that we want a King in the U S like we think that we got rid of that in the 1700s and you know, the founding fathers said, we don't want a single person to be able to, to take us to war and make that decision. Well, we've essentially gotten back to that now. And that's terrifying to me and not the way it's supposed to be. So Yeah, the, you know, the checks and balances. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the ideas. That's actually, I've been trying to promote um, the last one that you wrote for the American Conservative. It's titled, Why I Sued My Commander-in-Chief, President Obama. And I actually kind of pulled, pulled aside a little bit of the language in there. I was kind of hoping to quote you here real quick. <coughs> And sure. you wrote, I have reflected on the decision by President Donald Trump to withdraw troops from Syria. Do I think his decision-making process was flawed? Yes. Do I fear for the Kurds who are caught between a hostile Turkey and dangerous Syrian regime? Very much so. 
do I worry that the Islamic State remains potent and dangerous, even in its admittedly weakened state? I do. So again, I think that some people can think that the, we're sort of veering off course. But again, this is all a very principled argument that you're making. It's not necessarily that you even disagree with, I guess, the mission, I guess we could say. Um, and it, it's a really complex issue as far as these wars. But yeah, maybe if you if you would want to maybe expand a little bit upon that. So, I, I mean, <clears throat> I, I'm glad that came across in the piece. So the way I would sum it up is just in one sentence is the process matters. Like mm-hmm. the, the process matters. And if you don't think the process matters and we just get into this loop of just, well, for, for expediency's sake, we'll, we'll do it this way and we'll let the executive do it. And that way Congress will not have to ever have any accountability. That's very dangerous because I think it's a lot easier to take the nation from a state of peace to a state of war in any given operation or mission that you, you can name when it's at the end of the day, one person that making that decision and not a, not a collective body with fragmented power of, you know, 535 people. And that's why we set up the system to be that way in the first place. I mean, that's, that's why. So it, it just seems ridiculous to me to, to, to say that, the process doesn't matter. And yeah, you, you know, you're right. Like I, I wasn't necessarily against the, the conflict in Iraq and Syria in a certain sense. I, I don't, I do think sometimes the threat was like to the American homeland may have been, you know, may have been a little exaggerated, but I, I mean, I definitely saw enough in being an intelligence analyst in, in, in Kuwait to, I will put it this way. I didn't cry any tears for the, the guys that were dying in the strikes that we were doing over there. I mean, I'm not, I'm really not, I'm not a pacifist and there's some terrible people you know, in that organization doing terrible things every single day. And that, and that's why I wrote that in that piece. And it's very difficult for me to, to say that, you know, and, and know that I'm essentially advocating a position that's going to put the Kurds and the Iraqi army and Iraqi special forces that, that we fought alongside in Iraq and in, in Syria in a difficult position. But I just think that the ultimate danger is within on this issue. It's how we are veering away from our constitution and what that can lead to inside of our own country. And we need to fix that first. And once we fix the process, then we can, you know, have, and once, once we're able to have a discussion again in the proper way about what are our foreign policy objectives um, that, that goes outside of just the executive branch, then, then we can move forward. But we're, we're far from that point now because we've just gotten so far off track. Uh, there's one thing I definitely wanted to ask you about. This was really in the back of my mind. So you've been fighting for this vote for so long and then again, I just I see so much irony in the fact that uh, recently the Senate voted against Trump's decision um, to withdraw troops from from Syria and Afghanistan. It was a pretty bipartisan support. That it was like seventy to twenty six, and I was just kind of hoping you could comment your, your thoughts on on that. Well, you know, I, I think in a way it's the height of hypocrisy because you are sitting there in the Senate. And you are now going to have the audacity to 
condemn the withdrawal of, of troops there. But where have you been for three years? I mean, there are notable exceptions. Rand Paul, Tim Kaine has put forward a number of AMFs. Tim Kaine has been a very eloquent critic of this and was one of the few that, as a Democrat, that criticized the Obama administration for this when when it was obviously a Democratic president. But so I, I do think it's, in a way, the height of hypocrisy that the the only time you can get a vote, actually, is when the executive branch is unilaterally withdrawing troops. <laughs> I mean, now, again, I, I, I won't begrudge them their disagreement with the policy there. There are some good arguments for why we shouldn't precipitously withdraw from Syria. And again, I, I laid out what my concerns were that you, you mentioned in that tack piece that I wrote. But you don't get to... You don't get to do that and have any seriousness about it to me. So, yeah, it's it's pretty disgusting to see, um, and you know, it's just it just it's indicative too of where we are as a country, unfortunately, politically, where we have these partisan camps and people just can't they can't think of things in terms of of universal principles anymore. It's just which party do I identify with, and I have to vote that way because my you know, I'm either voting for or against the president, you know, either way. And again, I'm not pointing out either party here. They're both guilty of this. Yeah, but I, I sort of more point the finger at the Democrats on this one. Um, and the Democrats, or at least it's a general liberal principle, non-interventionist path is the better way. But the Democrats who are actually elected into office rarely, really go that way. And, and I think a lot of it was just simply whatever Trump says, I'm going to be on the opposite side of it. Right. Well, I, I would agree with you in the sense that I'm always more disappointed with the Democrats when they do this kind of thing, but it's also unfair for me to, so they actually had a, a vote on the, uh, the Yemen conflict previously in the Senate. And this was to a vote in the Senate, a resolution to withdraw support for the Saudis who are doing all kinds of egregious things in Yemen um, and were supporting them in, in doing so. And you had two Repu- or three, I think, Republicans cross the aisle and voted just to essentially to end the U.S. involvement there. One was Rand Paul, unsurprisingly. One was Mike, Mike Lee from Utah, who also has sort of a libertarian bent. Sure. And on, on some issues. And then I can't remember who the third one is. I, I should because I follow these votes very closely because I always want to provide kudos to people who actually show principle. So I, I keep up with the voting records. Um, but those were the only three Republicans across the aisle. Now, 11 vote, uh, 11 Democrats at that time voted for um, staying in supporting the Saudis. But the whole rest of the Democrats in the Senate. So whatever that comes out to be, this was before the 18 election. So whatever that comes out to be, like 38 Democrats voted to withdraw. So I can't necessarily say that I hold the Democratic, it it seems like it would be hypocritical for me to point a disproportionate amount of the blame on the Democrats when they're voting 39, the the majority of their caucus, at least on that particular vote, the vast majority is voting against it. Now, I'm extremely disappointed that 11 of them voted for staying because if they had provided a united caucus with three de- with three republicans crossing the aisle that we'd be out of Yemen or you know that resolution would have passed anyway it would probably be vetoed 
So I agree with you. I, I just think that I, I think both parties to a certain extent are, are culpable for the situation that we've, we've got in, unfortunately. And again, it's just purely my opinion, but I think a lot of, at least the little bit of progress that we've had on Yemen is really more related to the fact that Donald Trump really hasn't made much of a statement on it. Um, and, and I think that there would be sort of this reactionary politics. Rand Paul basically said it right after the, the last vote. I don't remember exactly, but basically paraphrasing it, you know, what's the one thing that brings Republicans and Democrats together? It's war. <laughs> That's, I agree with him on that. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you have a lot of interactions here with, with actual key decision makers. What do you think? I, mean, I know there's a lot of factors, but what, what are the pressures that are pushing them in this sort of perpetual war direction? I, I wouldn't say I have a lot of interaction. I met, I met one rep and, and I've spoke, I actually had a chance to talk to uh, Beto O'Rourke about it uh, briefly on the side of one of his rallies as he was running for Senate because he had voted to, he, he had signed a letter stating that he wanted an AUMF vote when he was in the House. Obviously, he's not in the House anymore. But right. the, the pressures that I think are, are creating this are, it's just a lack of, political and policy imagination as to any other course that's acceptable. I think that it's been so long since we've had a true debate over what are the objectives of these wars that nobody knows what to do anymore except to just continue down the same course. Because nobody wants the political culpability of pulling out troops and then having a group like ISIS or the Taliban in Afghanistan resurge and then, you know, be a threat to the the U.S. homeland. And I, and I understand that, but that is a necessary function for Congress to do. Like they have a role in debating foreign policy objectives. That's not just the executive branch that's supposed to be doing that. And you can look at history in the Vietnam war era, you had, I think it was Senator Fulbright uh, convened hearings in the late 60s or early 70s in which he was really questioning, you know, some of the things that the Johnson or Nixon administration, again, like my history is not exact on this, but I know that there was some, there were some panels called and and there was more of a discussion about what was going on than what you see now. And that was a form of, the legislative branch doing what it's supposed to do and asking hard questions and getting involved and saying, Hey, uh, if you can't, you, the executive branch cannot tell us what the end game is here, then we're going to tell you what the end game is. And this is not going to go on forever. So I think that that's what I'm trying to ultimately have happen again is just, I, I don't have all the solutions obviously, but I want to have a dialogue and I want to have, the proper separation of powers again. No, I fully agree. I mean, there's just, and and you've experienced that, there's just so many forces that exactly where we're going to err on the side of war. I mean, I think you kind of touched upon it. It's it's just not a very safe, so sad to say, but it's just a much safer political position to, to rule in favor of war. You know, you've also got a lot of financial conflicts of interest, you know, from weapons and defense contractors. I mean, before we went on the air, you know, we were talking about, you know, Trump's basic stance on, you know, cutting off weapons to Saudi Arabia. And I think we both kind of thought the same thing. We, we sort of appreciated the candor of Trump. Don't 
agree at all with his position, but the fact that he would just sort of say something that no president prior would, would openly admit. His predecessors were just a little bit more tactful and eloquent and dodging these sort of issues. <laughs> yeah, I think he at least, I mean, as disgusting as it was when he was talking about not wanting to pull out of our involvement in Yemen because we have lucrative weapons contracts with the Saudis. I mean, at least he's saying it. I mean, he's being transparent because that has been a, and I, and I was saying to you earlier, I, I don't know if the weapons deals and stuff are the proximate cause and the, the, the main cause for some of these wars or whatever, but they are a shaping factor, at least on the edges. And you can argue and debate a lot about how influential those actually are. And so in a way, as, as revolting as it was to hear that just incredibly immoral <laughs> argument being made, right. uh, at least it was out in the open. And I think that's what you're saying is, you know, Obama or, or Bush or, or any of the other recent presidents, I guess, like that's always been present, but they would never acknowledge that. And I know we, we've hammered away at, at how awful the system is. I do think it'd be kind of nice to, there is some positive news and, and you mind talking a little bit um, about what, what is happening with, with Yemen there? Yeah, so um, a couple weeks ago, the just over a week ago, the, the House passed uh, a resolution basically saying that you know they were not in favor of the United States um, continuing its support for the Saudis in, in Yemen, um, which is long overdue. I don't think we have any vital security interests there, and the Saudis are well-documented to be doing you know, as I said, some egregious things there in terms of the way they conduct their strikes as not being precise. And, you know, and um, so I think it was Ro Khanna in the House who's got a history of really supporting these kind of, of resolutions and, and driving them forward that led the effort on this. So it passed the House, and I guess it'll go now to the Senate, where I'm not sure where it stands in the Senate yet, honestly, but if I'm pretty sure it has not come up yet in the Senate, but I could be wrong. But the, the Senate, you know, basically a lot because of the Khashoggi, you know, just the totally egregious nature of the Khashoggi killing of the journalist that was killed in the, the embassy by the Saudis, where he's basically dismembered. There's some people in the Senate, even on the Republican side, that are, are getting pretty fed up with some of the antics of the Saudis. So it may be a right moment for for that House resolution to make its way even through the Senate, you know, despite Mitch McConnell's, I'm sure, backhanded best efforts to make sure it never sees the floor. But right. um, so I, I think that's definitely a, a, a light Sort of, and I'll take I'll take whatever victories I can take at this point. So I feel the same way. I mean, exactly. We're we're pointing to all these different flaws in a system, and you can I'm guilty of it too. You can just almost become too cynical, and I, I've caught myself several times. Oh, that could never happen. That could never happen because you know I, I focus so much on the conflicts of interest and just you know the different systemic issues, and then sometimes we we do actually have some progress. So it's, right. you know I. I I got to take that cynic hat off <laughs> from time to time and, and, and hand out credit when it's due. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I, I know that <clears throat> I know you've had a cold and, and you fought through it and I appreciate you doing <laughs> this interview. Um, yeah. Did you have any kind of final thoughts or anything you'd like to mention? 
Well, I, I guess like sort of just to, to wrap it up and, and like on that note of kind of what you just said that the thing that I would, cause people sometimes will ask me like, well, what can I do on this issue? Well, main thing you can do is like write your representative. And I mean, I have another story that for another day about me going to a, a town hall with my representative and we had had a kid killed in my district that was an army soldier in Iraq. And uh, I wanted to sit there in the line and ask him to his face, this representative, can you explain to me why it is that one of your constituents from your district who was 20 years old, I think, was killed in a war that you never could vote for against? And he got very upset with me for that question. Um, and I got very upset with him and ended up having to, having to leave. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing you got to make those guys uncomfortable. Now, fortunately, he had a sex scandal after that and he's no longer in Congress. So, but that's <laughs> the that's one neither. thing that can end a political career. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but those are the questions. And if, if people ask me, what can you do? You know, write your senators, write your representatives, and then reward the ones who are on the right side of issues like this. You know, the Barbara Lee's, the Rand Paul's, and, you know, the Walter Joneses of the world and acknowledge when they're taking a principled stand and you have to pay attention to these voting records. Well, awesome. I know you're definitely under the weather and, and I appreciate you agreeing to do this interview under those circumstances. But uh, more importantly, I appreciate the long and continued um, fight that you, that you've been, that you've been doing. It's, it's very important work. I hope you, you, you know, keep doing everything that you're doing. And I guess lastly, I'd just like to thank the audience for listening. Um, so please check out his article there, you know, share this with, with everybody, you know, and I'd like to thank everybody who supports the podcast. You can share it on social media, give it a five-star rating. Um, but if you really, the best way to support the podcast is actually to go out there and grab a um, copy of my three book series. It's called rackets It's on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So until next time, thank you much. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to, um, to prosecute. You can have a license. Price is $250,000, plus a monthly payment of 5% of the gross. Of all four hotels in the store. Corleone.